Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Uh, joining us now, Barbara Bowes, the president of Legacy Bowes Group. Barb, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks a lot for doing this. I appreciate it. A couple of reasons that I wanted to get you on here today. Uh, I want to talk to you about leadership. All the shows today are focusing in on leadership and specifically women in leadership. You are a, a woman and a leader, so I think you're a good person to talk to about that. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, first of all, our question of the day at cglb.com. Would you take a pay cut to work at home? So far, 74% saying no, 26% saying yes, and you sent over uh, some of your own research on this issue. It seems that most people, uh, if forced to stay at home and work, and that's not really what we're asking, uh, but if forced to stay at home and work, most people would say no. But those that are willing to work at home are also willing to take a bit of a pay cut, 8 to 10%. Your thoughts? Yeah, I was uh, quite surprised that the, uh, the question is very timely. There's, uh, there is a lot of research out there all of a sudden that, uh, especially with companies now saying that they will let their workers stay at home, and then the question is, well, are you interested in taking a pay cut? So, yeah, some of the work that I that I research here is that you had between um, an 8 and 10% pay cut to stay home. The other thing is when you're looking at those uh, surveys, they use the word privilege. It's a privilege to stay home. Therefore, we're going to reduce your wage, or I would mm. accept a reduced wage. So I think, yeah. that, I'll be honest with you, I think that the word privileged may have skewed some of the the uh, summaries here a little bit. Um, and then the other thing here was, yeah, 56% said if they were forced to work at home, they would go and try and find another job. The other thing the survey found out about is is that the flexibility that employers believe is, is driving employees to want to work at home wasn't exactly you know, the real issue, which was, was interesting. But there are certainly, you know, benefits if an employee wants to work at home. I, I have to confess myself that, uh, particularly for myself and other women, I'm not spending as much money on clothes or, or <laughs> cosmetics. Right. You know, so I'm kind of laughing at myself um, because I'm just not dressing up like I would when I go to my downtown office. Sure. But, but you know, you know, everybody has to look at what's your personal time and what's your sanity worth. How long are you driving? I live uh, out of town, uh, not very far, mm-hmm. out near Lockport. It takes me 30 yeah. minutes to get to town. That's really not much. But other people in other cities, Toronto, you know, the larger cities, they're driving an hour and a half. Then, you know, they would save travel time to and from work. They'd save costs, the gas, uh, parking, and you know when you're downtown, how many times do you go out for lunch a week? Lots. The work clothes, as I said, saving. And then work-life balance. You can even have supper at 5 o'clock instead of getting home at 5.30 and eating at 7. So, yeah, there are some benefits for the employees. Um, yeah. I, sometimes I struggle a little bit with what's, what's in it for the employer. And to me, the biggest one is, is the retail space physical space re- reduction i think in most cases could be quite quite significant but you've got other mm-hmm. things too like you know coffee supplies the technology costs etc although i think if you're going to have people at home you should be sharing some of those expenses and if you've got people that'll take a cut to to work at home okay well then you've got lower salaries but you know it's kind of interesting because i could say the last 3 or 4 months 
every single job um, candidate that I get looking for work at a senior executive level, mostly coming from the U.S., trying to come into Canada, and I I guess we know why, um, they're all in real (laughs) estate. So Hmm. I think there's either a fear or this work at home is starting to uh, really impact businesses to recognize they don't need all the space. So it's kind of interesting. I I, I just want to... Yeah, I just want to interrupt you because I don't want to run out of time for the leadership uh, part of the conversation, but I'm getting several text messages and emails right now from listeners saying this. Why would someone take a pay cut if you're doing the job? Another one, why would employees take a pay cut when they're still doing the same amount of work, only their workplace has changed? How does that make sense? I suggested earlier during our, our morning news meeting that I wonder if it's old school managers that are saying you're going to take a pay cut because i guarantee you you're not working as hard when you're working from home but i'll tell you for me my day is longer and harder now doing what i do from home so weigh in on on the text messages and emails bar well first of all there are studies to show that employees are more productive when they're working at home and i and i know i've seen longer hours like you're talking about and it's my my remiss here i should have said the same thing i don't know why anybody would want to take a salary cut because they are doing the same amount of work or as you're saying more so i I really don't know where this came from in terms of the the idea but Mm -hmm. um i i don't i i just don't see it yeah uh leadership um let's skip right to the the woman uh the women leadership uh, part of this are women better leaders generally speaking Well, I think the COVID-19 has been a really good example of women in leadership. It's two things. If you take a look at the statistics in terms of COVID deaths, all of the countries that are doing really, really, really well are led by women. And the other thing from any of the businesses, even here in Winnipeg, who do we go to? We rush right away to human resource managers. 90% of us in HR are women. Now, the reason that they're saying this has been highlighted so much by COVID is the fact that women demonstrate more compassion, more empathy, and more support during times of crisis. And so that's why leadership has become such a big issue, because we have some really good examples of leaders that are totally non-supportive, unbelieving, um, no empathy at all, and we can see what's happening all around them in terms of the crisis that they create simply by by their attitude and their responses. So it's interesting that the women in leadership issue has come to the fore because we are we're still struggling. How we're still struggling getting leaders at that senior executive level in companies. There well, are- I was going to ask you that if, if in fact, women are uh, are better leaders, generally speaking, and I don't disagree with that necessarily. Um, I I think it depends on the individual a little more than the gender. But but let's go with that. If that's the case, and you make a good argument for that, why are we not seeing more women leaders? Well, if you take a look at what's if you take a look at the larger organizations, even our government, it's basically all guys. And like begets like. So when you have a female candidate, they're, they're definitely not a man. Um, they're somehow, they don't fit. And it's real. It, it's really real. And uh, let me give you an example. I call it Barb's shoe story. Where I was walking by an office and there were 
five gentlemen in the office, all of them with their legs crossed, all of them with uh, shoes that had tassels on them. And I knew exactly at that point who was going to get the senior vice president of HR job was one of the guys, or the can- I knew who the candidate was, the candidate with the shoe tassels. So, I mean, there's no way that a, that a woman can compete with that. It's like begets like. So it's frustrating. Um, you know, we look at things like teachers, principals, um, school administrators. There's so many more women in those roles, but very few women in the senior superintendent role. We're seeing women graduating more than men in bachelors and masters in medicine and lawyers, but we're still not seeing them at that senior leadership role. Um, I, I think it's going to take maybe another 50 years because mm. like begets like. Yeah, I hope not. Barbara Bowles, thanks for the conversation. Always great. Appreciate it. Okay, have a great day. Historic day. As the nation's largest city, the nation's largest economy gets back on its feet, phase two begins today. A huge step forward, the biggest step forward as we fight back from the coronavirus crisis. Mayor de Blasio in New York City joining us now to talk about COVID-19, coronavirus across the U.S. is reporter Jim Crisula. Jim, good afternoon. Hi, Hal. Good to be with you. Yeah, thank you. So New York City and D.C., Washington, D.C., both heading into Phase 2. Exactly what does that mean? Things like barber shops can reopen hair salons. Uh, People can start eating at restaurants, outdoors primarily, but some restaurants being allowed in the district, at least Washington, D.C., indoor dining with uh, obviously a lot of restrictions in place. And you're joining us, I think, uh, this afternoon from North Carolina. We're up here in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where we have, I think, uh, as of today, one new case today and 14 active cases of COVID-19. Nothing like what we're, we've seen a bit of a spike in numbers of late here, but nothing like what some areas of the U.S. are seeing. Um, and the World Health Organization says the virus is accelerating, and yet, things are reopening down there is there is it like here where some people are very concerned and others are saying about time i think hell very much so that's probably a good way of putting it where i am yes in north carolina the carolina specifically north and south carolina seeing uh, spikes almost daily surges almost daily in new new cases one of the real concerns one of the hot spots Uh, across the United States right now. And I imagine some of your listeners have even been there, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Right Now, specifically in West Virginia, I can tell you that now eight counties in West Virginia have seen uh, what they're calling hotspots, small hotspots of coronavirus cases among people who recently went to Myrtle Beach in South Carolina. In fact, the governor of West Virginia is saying today, he said, I'm telling people, don't go. It's not worth it. A huge spikes in Florida and, of course, all of the beaches in Florida, Texas, Alabama, especially in the deep south, it seems, where a lot of these states opened up quickly. And even some of the states in the south never imposed restrictions in the first place. I can also tell you I'm looking at an email from CBS News. At least 18 states now have reported upward trends in hospitalizations over the last two weeks. So that's more reason for concern here in the States. 
Yeah, and then President Trump had his rally in Tulsa, and while it wasn't jammed to the rafters, it was a big crowd. In fact, I think six of his people that were putting that on have tested positive uh, for COVID-19. Is it reaching a point in much of the U.S. where there's just a cost to living now when it comes to COVID-19 and people are prepared to pay that price? I think so, or at least take the chance to go mm-hmm. out and, and ultimately maybe pay the price in terms of getting this COVID-19. Uh, a lot of people, you know, here and, and everywhere else, really, across the world, has been going on for, for what, better part of three months now. And people, I think, yep. are just obviously fed up. They're tired of, of not being able to go anywhere. You're seeing more and more governors in more and more states talking about the fact, pleading with people, please, please wear a face mask because you go to a lot of these places and people simply aren't aren't wearing any kind of a face covering at this point. I was going to ask you about that because that's a, you know, that's a discussion up here too, whether to wear a mask. And, and so you're saying some are down there, some aren't, depending on where you're at, I guess, maybe, and, and how bad COVID-19 happens to be in that particular area. What about social distancing? Are, are people practicing social or, or physical distancing down there? Well, I can tell you the bit I've been out in the Carolinas, the, the answer to that question, it, it seems to me the answer is no. Um, now, again, that, that's not to say that you know not everyone is is ignoring mm-hmm. social distancing requirements. But, uh, for example, here in North Carolina, the Raleigh, the, uh, the capital city of Raleigh, the mayor there opened that up a couple of weeks ago, the, the governor as well in, in that county. And then the mayor last week of Raleigh, the second biggest city in North Carolina, uh, imposed a requirement of people wearing face masks. But the the mayor was saying in social media posts over the weekend again that he was seeing pictures and videos of people in in some of the the night spot neighborhoods of Raleigh just jammed in together at bars and restaurants, very few masks. So again, in fact, he, he was talking about holding an emergency city council meeting to see what, if anything, they can do to force people to wear masks in the Raleigh area, again, the largest, second largest mm-hmm. city in, in really the Carolinas. Charlotte is the biggest in the Carolinas, followed by Raleigh. Yeah. And what can you tell us about the uh, the COVID-19 task force? You know, Dr. Fauci and, um, and Burks and the rest of them. It's been weeks, if not months, since we've seen anything uh, from them in front of cameras. We see the odd quote from Fauci here and there. Um, but that task force, talk about out of sight, out of mind, it has really kind of vanished, although I guess it's it's still around, they say. Yes. Uh, but, well, we don't know for sure. But yeah, where are they all? Where have they all gone? And of course, that uh, that committee, that group headed up by Vice President Mike Pence. By the way, to hell, he apparently has been holding a weekly teleconference with with each of the fifty governors, and he held one this morning. And one of the things President Trump said at the rally in Tulsa Saturday night, kind of a flippant remark, that. He that there, he had actually urged people to cut back on testing. Yeah, right. and that was a point of contention in, in this teleconference this morning. Several governors uh, queried the vice president uh, about the fact because then the White House said late yesterday, held it. Oh, that was he was just saying that in jest. 
Mm-hmm. And these governors were quite concerned about that comment and wanted to know if there was any validity or truth to it. And because obviously they're so concerned about the, the capacity, the ability to test as many people as possible. Yeah. Hey, Jim, thanks a lot for this. Really appreciate your time. Good to be with you. He'll take care and stay safe. Stay well. Thank you. You as well. Jim Crisula, reporter for CBS, uh, joining us this afternoon from North Carolina. I mentioned a couple times already uh, late last week we've got this new relationship going with CBS, and I'm telling you, man, we are getting some really great uh, reporters and experts right on the front lines of whatever the story is. In Jim's case, uh, it's COVID-19, and it's it's really been uh, great uh, uh, having them on our various shows uh, here on CJOB. So, yeah, New York City. And Washington, D.C. enter phase two, even though the World Health Organization says the virus is accelerating. And, I mean, let's face it, our our numbers here, relatively speaking, are low, have been low. One new case today, 14 active cases. But as Dr. Brent Rusin said, as we covered the Provincial COVID-19 News Conference live at 1 today, we'll do it again on Thursday. We're covering those live now on Mondays and Thursdays. Um, As he said, listen, we need to learn to live with the virus. It is going nowhere. It's Indigenous History Month. Yesterday was Indigenous Peoples Day, and uh, joining us to chat about it is Michael Redhead Champagne, the founder of Aboriginal Youth Opportunities. Michael, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you folks doing today? Good. Excellent. We're very good. Thank you for uh, taking a few minutes here with us. I saw on your Twitter feed on the weekend a great idea. You know, there's a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to uh, race relations and some of the stuff that's really been in the news of late uh, uh, here and in the U.S., Uh, But you had a real simple idea, and I thought, you know what? This is the sort of stuff we need to get out there. Um, we got to work on the big stuff. Don't get me wrong. But you had a suggestion about something that could happen at the zoo, and it's so simple, yet it it really does start the process of reconciliation at a very young age. Explain. Well, actually, what I love about this conversation, that we're even having it, is uh, one of my non-Indigenous friends actually made the suggestion on his Facebook page. There you go. And said, I wish I could learn the Cree names of the animals when I go to the zoo. And I was like, holy man, that's, that's a really simple and great point. And so I just expanded it a little further when I posted it on Twitter and I talked about the different languages that are here in Manitoba. And yeah, folks seem to really believe that that's something that's realistic and achievable that we would be able to do as you said a small step immediately yeah for you know old people like me right that have been around for a long time because i don't know those names but also for the kids that go to the zoo because that's where we need to start making the change right right michael with the young people yeah and it's and it's great like there's a couple of uh, words in Swampy Cree that I think are for the animals that everybody should know. Um, otter is Nikik. Repeat after me. Say Nikik. Nikik. There you go. That's otter in Swampy Cree. There's also Niska. Say Niska. 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 Who's that? that means, What's that? That means goose. It means goose. Cool. 
I'm gonna when I see a goose now. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that when I see a goose. And it's funny because we've got a river otter up at the lake that's been running around our our uh, our lakefront property. And so now I know two very important words. Well, there we go. And there's I'll give you one more if anybody wants to go fishing. To say fish, you say gino so. So repeat after me. Say gino so. Gino so. Fish. Cool. So that's cool. a little bit of Swampy Cree, and it's that easy for us to sit and listen to our knowledge keepers and those who are able to speak First Nations, Métis, and Inuit languages fluently. It's a small act of reconciliation, but I think it's something that a lot of non-Indigenous organizations could do, and it would be very me- meaningful. I love it, and I love that it came from a non-Indigenous friend of yours. You shared it, and then I saw it, and now here we are having a conversation. And that's as basic as it gets, right, Michael? That's the most reconciliation story I can ever imagine. Yeah, and it's that simple. So I mean, things it, that we can do, and it's even acknowledging, like beyond the animals at the zoo, it can be acknowledging the city that we live in, Winnipeg. Uh, derives from Cree language as well of muddy water. So yep, right. let's take a look at, at our city, our street names, and let's see where we can reclaim some of these beautiful uh, knowledge and teachings and languages from the First Peoples. Mm-hmm. Not just this month. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And I I think sometimes, you know, it can seem overwhelming, you know, the idea of reconciliation. And there's, you know, there's it, it feels sometimes like, man, there's so much work that needs to be done here, and it can be daunting. But it, it you know, just in a few minutes here, we've shown how simple it can be and how that plants a seed, doesn't it? Exactly. It doesn't have to be difficult, but um, everybody can do something. So for people who think that they're helpless in reconciliation, I hope you know and understand that you are able to, everyone is able to do something. Mm-hmm. Are you more hopeful uh, lately, Michael? Are, are you, do you feel hope going forward more than, you know, even a month or two ago? Um, I think the pandemic has really, uh, laid bare some of the inequities we have in our systems in Winnipeg here. And so I really feel like things have been getting pretty uh, tough lately. Um, but something that I love about the Indigenous community here in Winnipeg is that when things get difficult, that's usually time for us to rise up and work together. So I've been seeing a, a lot of fantastic community work that's been happening, trying to help make sure that folks are able to connect with one another and stay safe. For example, just earlier this afternoon, Indigenous Vision for the North End, which is a collection of 11 nonprofits in the North End, hosted right. a social distancing medicine walk where folks were able to go around and bring uh, sage, cedar, tobacco, sweetgrass, and medicines to community members and hand out some of these um, items so that we can smudge the North End. So these are the types of things that we can do, um, even in a pandemic, and I'm really proud of all the Indigenous leadership here in Winnipeg that I think is doing a, a stand-up job. Mm-hmm. And I understand it's tough out there, um, but I guess maybe I, I'm feeling more hope now than I ever have, and so that's why I asked that question about about hope. Well, that makes me happy um, to hear that you're feeling hopeful because we're going to need that positive energy to help fuel all of the good things that are coming in the future. So. I'm happy yeah. that you're feeling hopeful, and I hope that the listeners 
also feel hopeful because we need everyone. I hope so too. Michael Redhead Champagne, appreciate your time and thank your friend for the great idea. And I think we got to talk to uh, the zoo about getting that done. Yes, let's do it. All right, Michael, thank you. Talk soon. Take care. Michael Redhead Champagne, uh, obviously a community activist and the founder of Aboriginal Youth Opportunities. Your thoughts, 204-780-6868, hal at cjob.com. Getting some good reaction uh, to how has COVID-19 affected you positively. Sharon, in an email here, hal at cjob.com, says, uh, Hal, I'm a single mom, 20-year-old daughter. She works full-time and goes to the University of Winnipeg full-time, so you can imagine I very rarely saw her. COVID had her doing her home uh, schooling at home, and her place of work was closed, so we got to spend all of our time together from mid-March until May, time we would not have otherwise had. That's a great uh, story, Sharon, and, and that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for. It's a pandemic. It's a deadly virus. Don't get me wrong. Seven Manitobans have died. And many, many people around the world. Um, never will I, you know, suggest that this is a good thing. It's not. But good things can come from bad and terrible things. And so that's what I'm kind of getting at here, carrying on this this Reddit thread. A couple of other uh, text messages here. How the virus has helped myself is I can't go to the bar. Don't spend money like I did. And don't spend money on VLT. So the money is staying in the bank. And I've actually saved money. Yes, I think a lot of people um, are uh, finding that if they're lucky enough to be working. And as I've said many times, I, I feel blessed that I'm able to work at home and, and make a paycheck. And I know many of you aren't able to do that, and, and you're really struggling. And know that I, I feel that pain. I really do, each and every one of you. I think about you all the time. Another one here. We were able to spend more time with our grandson who moved up north. He came to stay with us during the quarantine. So that's kind of what we're looking for. Um, ways that COVID-19 has affected you positively. Right now, we have to welcome our next guest here, Lauren Remillard, President and CEO of the Winnipeg Chamber of Commerce. Lauren, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. Thank you for jumping on here for a couple of minutes. Um, yesterday, Indigenous Peoples Day, it's Indigenous History Month, and uh, I know that uh, I saw this on Twitter, and I want you to explain more as to what this is, your Truth and Reconciliation Roadmap at the Chamber. Explain. Yeah, it's a document that we released on Friday uh, leading into National Indigenous Peoples Day, and it really is the culmination of many years of work that really began with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission itself. Um, from that commission, the Chamber, as part of our principles, our values around diversity, inclusivity, we began a series of events and programs to begin to raise awareness of what is truth and reconciliation, and particularly what role does business have as part of those 94 calls to action? Because there is one specific uh, number 92 that really calls to the business community to say there are things that you can do to support reconciliation. So we had done a number of events, a number of speakers, a number of workshops. One of the things that emerged from that, from the business community, was we want to do something. We want to be part of this journey of reconciliation, but we really don't know where to even begin. And so starting in the fall of last year, we pulled together a very large group of Indigenous leaders, business people, academia, government, to be able to start to say, what can we provide business as a roadmap to say, here's some initial steps that you can take. 
um, regardless of where you are maybe on a particular journey of reconciliation. And ultimately, the document that we released is a culmination of all that work to say, if you're committed to undertaking this journey, there's a number of ideas and links to resources to help you make that first step. Because again, that was one of the missing pieces we found is people wanted to be a part of the solution, but they really didn't know where to turn to. And hopefully through this document, people will now have that resource available to them. Well, and I had a great conversation half an hour or so ago with Michael Redhead Champagne. And, um, you know, while it, as I said to him, it can seem daunting and reconciliation can seem like a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of work, and there is a lot of work to be done there, it can also be small little baby steps, right? Simple things that can be done that are part of the big picture of reconciliation. Absolutely. Every journey begins with that first step, and it doesn't have to be something that's global game changer. Uh, You know, incrementally, little things, little steps do add up, and we're in this together. It's going to be a long-term journey. Uh, Every uh, initiative, every honest effort will make a difference. And, you know, our chair was on earlier on CGOB talking that the Indigenous community itself has been talking reconciliation for many, many decades. And they have reached out their hands to non-Indigenous community members to say, join us, help us, work with us, uh, let us lead you, let us work with you on your journey of reconciliation. So, Uh, Again, for people that take a look and go, where do I begin? It it seems like such a mammoth undertaking. It's not. You just have to have an honest commitment, uh, an authenticity to your efforts, and work with Indigenous leaders and communities, uh, and that will shine through. What is ultimately the, the key aspect of anything you do is the relationship. This isn't a checkbox that is that is not authentic. It really begins with forming uh, meaningful relationships with Indigenous communities, Indigenous peoples, Indigenous leaders. That will progress us much farther than anything else, is that real, open, honest communication relationship building. Hey, Lauren, well, I've got you. How are you at the Chamber and uh, your members feeling about Phase 2, Day 2 of Phase, uh, uh, sorry, Phase 3, Day 2 of Phase 3 today? How are they feeling? Well, we're definitely going in the right direction. We reopen the economy more. I think there is a strong sense of optimism in the business community. There are challenges that remain. We continue to hear about commercial rent being the uh, largest issue. A number of companies are still struggling to try to get employees back to the workplace. I, I think it's important we say return to the workplace because I think many, many people have been working out of their office in their homes with kids running around. We've all been on those Zoom calls with unexpected visitors. But uh, nevertheless, there there is uh, optimism. We just we released the results of a probe research today in partnership with the Business Council of Manitoba and the Manitoba Chambers. There are far too many Manitobans that are still overly cautious and have many reservations about re-engaging in the economy. If we're going to reopen our economy successfully, we need all Manitobans to participate in that. And we talk a lot about restaurants. I, Kathy Kennedy's filling in for Jeff Courier for the next couple of weeks, and she was out with her dad yesterday at a restaurant, and she was surprised at how quiet it was. Um, are you hearing that from any of your restaurant members? Some are very busy, especially with Father's Day. Others, again, uh, maybe because of the layout and they're not able to maximize their, their floor space due to social distancing are a little more quiet, particularly the restaurants in the downtown that rely so heavily 
on the you know business traffic during the work day. Uh, they've seen a significant decrease as again we continue to see a lot of the downtown population office workers that uh, remain working from home. So it's 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 a mixed bag. I think some are doing better than others, but uh, as a sector across the board, uh, it is a challenging time to be in the restaurant and hospitality business, no doubt about it. And I think every time we go to a new phase, we look ahead and go, well, yeah, but what about, are there any of those businesses, any of your members that are still waiting for an opportunity to get back at it that, that you think maybe should be looked at sooner than later? Arts and culture, uh, that sector was um, one of the first to be closed down because you think when you think of arts performance, be it like Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre or Winnipeg Folk Festival, groups like that, you know, they rely on large scale public gatherings to effectively perform. And again, one of the first to shut and one of the likely to be the last sectors to be reopened. And many of them, I mean, it's they're they're on very thin margins, um, trying to provide the best quality product they can, and uh, it's a very difficult time for the arts and culture sector. Um, and I think there is an opportunity. And we did have discussions with Dr. Brent Rusin and other government officials, and we continue to do so about can we develop a sector-specific strategy that recognizes the unique nature of that sector and the challenges they've had through COVID to be able to potentially allow them to reopen, but maybe in a different, in a different approach that is, again, more sector-specific. But uh, therein is one area, given, of course, we all know Winnipeg's arts and culture sector punches above its weight on the national stage. Um, and that's a great thing during good times, but when it comes to a global pandemic, uh, it has the opposite effect. Thanks for doing this, Lauren. Thanks, Al, for having me. Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.